0: So today, as you just heard read, we will be in Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 28. Uh, The title of this sermon is, Why Do You Seek the Dead Among the Living? Today we come to the midpoint and a hinge point in the book of Daniel. Uh, From here we'll move from specific stories of God's faithfulness to and through his people to a more cosmic scale of those same truths in chapters 7 through 12. Uh, Daniel 6 is one of the most famous stories in the whole book of Daniel, and one of the more well-known stories in all of the Bible. Uh, and after studying it these last several weeks, I have to tell you, uh, it's amazing, but not for the reasons that I thought it was. Uh, I hope you'll see what I mean by the end of the sermon. Uh, Today we're taking a long look at the story of Daniel and the lion's den, so let's dive in. Point number one in verses 1 through 15 is honoring God even when it costs you. Uh, Honoring God even when it costs you. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 15. Uh, First of all, we're dealing with another chapter and yet another king. And yet, Daniel's still there. Now, this is one of the main themes I hope you've seen throughout the book as a whole. God is sovereign above kings and kingdoms. We've seen these powerful kings, one after the other, after the other. And yet, God's servant, who's faithful day in and day out, is outlasting them all. Simply put, The kingdoms of this world will all have an end, but not God's kingdom. His kingdom has no end. We're meant to see that on a small scale here in the book of Daniel. So, we've got another king, Darius. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time here because it's not the main importance of our text today, but... Many believe Darius to be the same king as Cyrus, Uh, and there are some really great explanations for this theory, and I I lean that way, even though it's uncertain from the text. So uh, real quick, look with me at verse 28 of chapter 6. We end chapter 6, it says, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of King Cyrus the Persian." Uh, If we uh, understand historically Darius and Cyrus to be the same guy by a different name, uh, we would translate the and of this verse as that is. So it would read, So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, Again, there are historical reasons to do this, but more importantly, uh, there are grammatical reasons to do this. Uh, So we're not just taking the extra-biblical history and then altering the text to make it fit. Uh, There are grammatical reasons and other places in scripture, like 1 Chronicles 5.26, where we see this kind of thing present. Uh, We also see the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Septuagint translates verse 28 exactly in this respect. Uh, This is Not a gospel issue, and I'm certainly not throwing my stake in the ground on this one, but from my study, uh, Darius and Cyrus seem to be different names for the same person. One given to him by the Medes, and one given to him by the Persians. So, a new king, a new kingdom, and Darius hits the ground running by setting up 120 satraps throughout the kingdom, just kind of, run things for him. Uh, These were governors or officials who the king set up to essentially stop corruption in his land. Uh, So Darius sets up these governors, and then look at verse 2. It says, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. With Uh, Such a a large kingdom, it was common practice for people to kind of skim off the top, line their own pockets, thus making the king suffer loss. Crazy, huh? Even then, political and governmental corruption was a thing. But, this shouldn't be surprising to us. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the human heart has been the same whether in Babylon or present-day Baltimore, Persia or Pittsburgh. Hearts, wicked, <coughs> sinful, corrupt. So, above the 120, Daniel, it tells us, is one of the three. Let's call them vice presidents. But it gets better. Look at verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom do you see how ironic this is in chapter five remember last week what did belshazzar try to bribe daniel with being third in the kingdom right with a a wink and a nod god does one better than the windbag king that offered him this bribe in chapter 5. Daniel not only outlasts Belshazzar, but moves up the authority ladder by God's sovereignty. And within God's sovereignty, why was Daniel elevated? The text tells us because an excellent spirit was in him. An excellent spirit was in him. We've already discussed this a couple of times so far in the book, but don't miss this. God was empowering Daniel. Daniel was consistently faithful to God, and people knew about it clearly. This wasn't because Daniel was naturally gifted somehow, or had some kind of great ability or charisma. He walked with God, and God worked through him. I want to keep pounding the table for us on this, metaphorically speaking. Would your neighbors, co-workers, friends, and family members describe you in this way, as having an excellent spirit? Put again, is there something different about you from everyone else in your sphere of influence? If not, why not? As a Christian, you are called to be different. And you are different. You're a child of God who has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. You have the Word of God as a sure and steady guide for your life. There should be something different about you. There's something different about Daniel here. I also want to point out when in Daniel's life that this event is happening. He's over 80 years old at this point in the story. (laughs) That's crazy. I was talking to several of you last week about this, but I've always pictured Daniel in this story, the lion's den story, as a 20-something. Young, full of energy, ready to take on the world. He's old. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says here. He says, Daniel's experience runs counter to what we often assume is characteristic of Christian experience. In this respect, it is like Christ's. His greatest test came toward the end of his spiritual pilgrimage, not at its beginning. We tend to assume that the great test in Christian experience occur in its early stages. That perspective fails to see one of the chief functions of temptation in God's plans. He means to strengthen us through our successful resistance, to enable us to meet greater or more persistent tests in the future. God trains his children in the way they should go, so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. Daniel is faithful to the end. He's the embodiment of Psalm chapter 92, verses 12 through 15, which says this. It says, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Here we go. Verse 14. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. I long for us to be a church that's vibrant and full of young families. And we are. I praise God for that. But I also long for us to be a church full of Psalm 92 men and women. Those who are still bearing fruit in old age. We need Daniels. We need Psalm 92 men and women to be part of Santa Cruz Baptist Church. We should be praying for this and inviting older, faithful people to be a vital part of this church. Daniel is old and faithful. So, what does this lead to? Look with me at verses four and five. Then the high officials and the satraps brought to find, or sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint, or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, "We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in concern or in connection." with the law of his God. First of all, do you realize that the world hates you? Yes, by God's sovereignty, Daniel, in this text and before this text, finds favor with the king. But it's a double-edged sword. Favor with kings and subsequent faithfulness to God may prove costly. Do you see in this chapter how much Daniel is hated by the world? He's faithful to God, and yet they're here conspiring against him. This is what Jesus himself told us. It isn't just a possibility, but that we should expect as Christians. John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christians, you'll never be able to fully please the world. If you're faithful to God, you will be opposed by the world. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Paul says something similar to, to Timothy. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Trying to fully please the world as a Christian is a fool's errand. And again, this shouldn't surprise us if we've read Genesis 3. What does Genesis 3.15 tell us? This is God in the garden speaking to the serpent, Satan. Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise Do you see that? Like God says, there's going to be war between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Satan. Constant hostility between the people of God and the people of Satan. That's what we see happening here in Daniel chapter 6. But do you see what they find on Daniel as they start to, to dig into his life a little bit? Nothing. There's no dirt. It says, But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. And then it goes on. They say, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel, unless we find it in connection with this law, the law of his God. Now, this isn't saying that Daniel was sinless. But with regard to his work, and how he lived his life. He was faultless. So I I wanna ask you this morning, asking myself this this morning, could this be said about you? If someone were trying to do a smear campaign on you and they had the tools at their disposal to see everything that you've ever done and ever said, every email and text you've written, how you've used company time or money, Would this be said, no ground for complaint or any fault, faithful, no error or fault? Would they have to go at you on the basis of your walk with God to get you? Or would it be much easier? They knew that Daniel's walk with God was utterly predictable. And that was the only way that they'd get to him they'd have to pit his faithfulness to God against his faithfulness to the king. I don't have to tell you that there are numerous laws in our country right now that have this same effect. Abortion laws. Even some like the so-called Equality Act that are being drawn up as we speak. Your faithfulness to God will be pitted against faithfulness to these laws. That's very real to us today. So, here's what they do. Verses 6 through 9. It says, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. A little bit of flattery there, right? All the high officials of the kingdom The prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, and injunction. Do you see how deceptive they are here? They come and they say, all the high officials, etc., are agreed. No, they're not. <laughs> Daniel, who's clearly at the top of the org chart, clearly wasn't included in this discussion. But they lie to the king. And the king buys it even though Daniel wasn't with them. The king should have said, "Uh, Wait, you say all, but I don't see Daniel here with you. What does he think about this? But, in his pride, the idea sounds pretty good. All petitions for 30 days coming through him. He's a surrogate deity. A mediator between God and man. All right, sounds good. Let's do it. Signs the document. Further, this would have solidified Persian power following a transition, as we saw, from Babylon to Persia. It would have brought true unity to the kingdom, right? Yay, unity! Unity is a good thing, right? Not always. Remember the Tower of Babel. They were quite unified. What about Psalm 2? There's unity against the Lord and his anointed. As Christians, we should fight for and strive for Christian unity. Jesus himself prays for this in John 17. But we shouldn't assume that because someone says unity that it's automatically a good thing. Christian unity around the gospel And worldly unity are two different things. So beware of how our culture right now is using this term. Not all unity is good unity. So they're going to trap Daniel with his known practice of prayer. And here's something interesting to note in the text. Do you see how long this injunction is to last for End of verse 7. How long is it meant to last for? 30 days. One month. Let's be clear. This wasn't a command that everyone had to pray to Darius the king. It was a command that if you prayed or made a petition, it had to go through him. In other words, all Daniel had to do was not pray for 30 days. This wasn't a Daniel chapter 3 situation where idolatry was being commanded. It just forbid making petitions to God for 30 days. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, in answering this question, what is sin? It says this in answer. It says, sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. See, in Scripture, there are sins of commission, meaning actively committing a sin, or sins of omission, meaning you omitted or neglected to do something that God commands. Sins of commission, sins of omission. All that Daniel's being asked to do is to not pray for 30 days. Do you see why this doesn't work? How many days are you comfortable with disobeying God? I hope the answer is zero. But Drew, they're they're not commanding Daniel to overtly sin here. They're, They're just telling him he can't obey God in the way Scripture commands. And it's just temporary. How many days are you comfortable disobeying God? Hebrews ten twenty four through 25 it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. First Timothy four thirteen, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Ephesians 5:19 tells us to be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart 1 Timothy 2:8 says I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling What's my point There are things in scripture like gathering, reading scripture publicly, singing, praying, that we're commanded to do as the people of God. To neglect these things would be a sin of omission. Are you following me here? Is this book relevant or what? The injunction would stop Daniel from praying for 30 days. Now, Ask yourself honestly, would it make a substantial difference in your life if prayer were banned for the next 30 days? If the the President of the United States signed an act that said, prayer is illegal for the next 30 days, would you, in your regular rhythm of prayer, break that law? Fear is that a good portion of people regularly go 30 days without ever petitioning God. We're an independent people who often don't think we need God. But Daniel's not. He knows that he can't obey this injunction. Look at verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, He went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, opened toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Daniel isn't ignorant to what's going on. He knows that the document's signed, and he doesn't waste a second. It's like the ink hasn't even dried on the signing. And Daniel's headed to disobey the king, obey God, and pray. He's not disobeying God for 30 days, not even for 30 minutes. He doesn't do it in hiding either, does he? The text goes out of the way to tell us that he has his windows open. He's not cowering. He's a man of prayer not going to decide to be unfaithful at age 80. Instead, this is the pinnacle of his faithfulness. And notice that these windows are open, where? Toward Jerusalem. What's up with that? Well, this isn't some sort of required ritual, but there are a couple of reasons that he did this. Number one, it was a reminder to him of the covenant promises of God. God promised to dwell with his people, to make himself known to them. And up to this point in scripture, he had done so in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a visible symbol of the kingdom of God. So he prays in that direction to remind himself of God's covenant promises. Second, he's using scripture as his guide. Look at the scriptural direction of Solomon's prayer from 1 Kings 8, verse 35 and 48 through 50. In 1 Kings 8. It says, When heaven is shut up, and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, speaking of Jerusalem, verse 48, if they repent with all their heart, and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who carried them captive, and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. So, Daniel's doing this. He's putting himself in a posture directed toward the presence of God. On his knees. In submission to God. He's faithful to pray in line with God's word from 1 Kings 8. Do you see that? Three times a day. As he had done previously. Amazing. Amazing. Daniel was so consistent in this practice that they knew that they could catch him doing it. <laughs> Hear this. Neither Daniel nor us earn God's favor or salvation through how much we pray. We're God's children. Only through the saving sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the cross. But this is a portrait of a child of God who's completely dependent on the Father. Daniel is a model for us of consistency and commitment to prayer. So often, today we say things like, come on, I don't want to be a legalist or too rigid in my prayer life, so I'm not going to plan it. I'm going to be spontaneous. That's fine, but... What we usually end up doing is not praying at all. Sinclair Ferguson again helpfully says this. He says, there can never be spontaneity in any sphere without discipline. What seems so free and spontaneous in a musician's performance or an athlete's brilliance is always the fruit of hours, days, months, and years of regular discipline and practice. Discipline and regularity are vital keys to success. That is no less true of the spiritual life. Similarly, J. Adams says, we find it easy to debunk habit. Habit can degenerate into lifeless routine and can murder spontaneity. But a train's habit is to be confined to its tracks and therein consists its usefulness and safety. Prayer for Daniel was a disciplined, routine, habitual part of Daniel's schedule. Every day. This wasn't a small part of Daniel's faithfulness. One more truth for us to see in his prayer. If you were in Daniel's shoes, what would your prayer look like in this moment? I'd be praying for protection deliverance from the king i'm sure he probably was too but look what else the text says he's giving thanks before his god thankfulness in this moment yes when you know and trust god like daniel does he gives thanks for who god is and being worthy of serving god in this specific way even though he knows it's about to be costly. Daniel knows that God is sovereign over all things. He's thankful for that. He knows that God has a plan. He's like James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, which says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What can you be thankful for in the midst of trial? So, the king's men predictably catch Daniel in the act of obedience. Not to their king, but to the king, the king of heaven and earth. They go to Darius and let him know what happened, and demand that the law be carried out. Daniel must be thrown to the lion's den. While Darius is distressed, and the text tells us, set his mind to deliver Daniel, he decides that he's powerless under his own law. Well, what happens next? Point two. The deliverance and judgment of God. Verses 16 through 28. Now, at this point in the narrative, the spotlight kind of focuses in on the king. Verses 16 through 18. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Darius is a wreck. He's distraught. He goes without food, entertainment, and sleep. But one commentator here says his helplessness suggests to us that it's better to be a child of faith in a den of lions than a king in a palace without faith. Do you see that? So Darius is troubled. And as the readers were kind of left in suspense about Daniel at this point, I wonder what happens to him. Verses 19 and 20. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, notice a couple of truths here in this text. One implicit and one explicit. Implicitly, Darius must have some belief that Daniel's God is able to deliver him, as he prayed for in verse 16. May your God deliver you. We know this implicitly because he ran to the den in the morning, right? If he didn't at least slightly believe this, he would have just assumed that Daniel was lion's meat gone on about his day, probably feeling guilty. Then, he asked a question. Has your God been able to deliver you? In the words of David Helm, it's not just Daniel who's on trial here. It's the God of Israel as well. Has your God been able to deliver you? Can he save? We see that implicitly. But... Explicitly, look at what Darius says. Middle of verse 20. "O Daniel, servant of the living God. He at least gives lip service to the truth that God is the living God. He's not like the the lowercase g gods from chapter 5, who neither hear nor see nor know. He's a living God. And in that, there's hope. If we were watching a TV show right now that kind of wants to encourage us to binge watch another episode, this is where we'd leave you off in a cliffhanger. Verse 20, followed by dead silence. Darius runs out, yells this question, Did he live? Did 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 your God save you? Wait till the next episode to find out what happened. What's Darius going to find? Verse 21 through 23. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So while the king was in anguish and fasting in the palace, Daniel was peaceful because as it turns out the lions were fasting too. And Notice why Daniel says that he was rescued. Verse 22. They have not harmed me. Why? Because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Now, Daniel isn't claiming sinless perfection here. But he is saying, I've honored God here. I've lived righteously. And God saved me. There's a real connection here between salvation and righteousness. Daniel persevered in righteousness to the end. God protected him and brought him out in newness of life. Why? Verse 23 because he had trusted in his God. Do you see that? Trust in God led to Daniel being brought out of the ground alive. But there's another side to this as well. I want to recall Genesis 3.15 just one more time for us. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Speaking to Satan in the garden. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see the the two sides to God's promise there? He promises deliverance for the offspring of Eve. But he also promises judgment for the offspring of Satan. He's going to have his head crushed. We've just seen Daniel delivered. Here's the other side. Look at verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Now, Herodotus, who's a historian, he informs us that This punishment for entire families was part of Persian law. This isn't one of Israel's laws, but this is part of Persian law. But the point we're meant to see here is this. Judgment falls on those who sought to destroy the kingdom of God. Deliverance for Daniel and judgment for God's enemies. Very parallel to what we saw in Daniel chapter 3. If you remember, the furnace is heated up to throw Daniel's three friends in. But these men who are going to throw him in actually burn up instead. All of this results in yet another proclamation. Deliverance and judgment. And then this proclamation from the king. All the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. The Good news of Daniel's God, is going forth to all of those realms. And look what he says, verses 26 and 27. The king says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, I told you that this chapter was amazing. And I hope it's posed some piercing questions for us thus far. I hope that you've seen the truth of Daniel's faithfulness and his deliverance through trust in his God. But I've intentionally left the most important part of this chapter for the end. Point three, the true and better Daniel. If we only walk away from Daniel six with some good moral lessons, we've failed. Daniel certainly is a good model for us. but There's one who was better. In Luke chapter 24, we have this amazing moment when the risen Jesus walks alongside these two women. He speaks to them then teaches them a Bible study. And look at what Luke chapter 24 verse 27 says. This is the Bible study that he's doing for them. It says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Several verses later, verses 44 and 45, then he said to them, "These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, meaning Jesus, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled." Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Very simply, he's saying, the whole Old Testament is about me. He's telling us this morning how we should read the Old Testament in light of him. So let's let's put those lenses on and look again at Daniel chapter 6. Daniel was a faithful man, a man full of the spirit and wisdom, who's wrongfully sentenced because a band of people conspiring against him. He then has a weak ruler who does everything he can to release him, but to no avail. Daniel is sentenced, then led to death. He's put in a pit. A stone is rolled over the entrance, and a seal placed on it to ensure there's no escape. The next morning, early in the morning, the king goes in haste to the tomb. I mean, pit. Instead of the dead, he finds the living. Daniel walks out of the pit alive, giving glory to God. Death's jaws were shut. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Yes. Daniel is a type of Christ. His story is meant to point us forward to a true and better Daniel. Jesus. Jesus had an excellent spirit and came as the wisdom of God. He was blameless before God and man in an even better way than Daniel. He was sinless. Jesus was conspired against by the Sanhedrin and the chief priest. His response was to go to the garden and pray. Jesus was brought before Pilate, a weak ruler, who agonized and tried to release him, but to no avail. Pilate would finally wash his hands of him, hand Jesus over to death. Jesus would go to the cross. And on that cross, he quoted Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But what do we have in verse 21 of that same psalm that Jesus quoted on the cross? Save me from the mouth of the lion. Jesus is buried in the tomb. And Check this out. Matthew 27, verses 65 through 66. After Jesus is buried in the tomb, Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. How did they do that? So they went and made the tomb secure by placing a seal and sealing the stone and setting a guard. Although Jesus was sinless, he suffered for the guilty, left alone, abandoned, in blackness, until the angels appeared. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they themselves remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It's almost as if the writer of Daniel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us to see Jesus. Exactly. Jesus is the true and better Daniel. His righteousness is our salvation. This moment in the life of Daniel is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of our eternal salvation to all who obey him. Just as in Daniel 6, there are two paths today, deliverance or judgment. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1 verse 15. Romans 10, 9 through 11. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. If you have turned from sin and trusted in Christ as your only hope of salvation, you can rest in that truth this morning, that you're delivered, forgiven, redeemed. How do you know that? Because Christ is alive. The tomb was empty. He overcame death. When he rose, we rose with him to new life. His resurrection was proof of all of that. that We can rest in and have hope in. We're meant to see that in Daniel's resurrection in chapter 6. If you have never made that decision to, to let go of your sin and follow christ we invite you to in this moment like daniel there will be real costs to following god but i hope you see in this text that he'll never leave you or forsake you repent and believe in the good news of jesus christ let's pray